Definitively Speaking is a definitive healthcare podcast series recorded and produced in Framingham, Massachusetts. To learn more about healthcare commercial intelligence, please visit us at definitivehc.com. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Definitively Speaking, the podcast where we have data-driven conversations on the current state of healthcare. I'm Justin Steinman, Chief Marketing Officer at Definitive Healthcare, and your host for this podcast. I'm joined today by Atman Laraki, CEO of Color. Color provides a technology and infrastructure for large-scale health initiatives, for everything from population genomics programs to high-throughput COVID-19 testing to immunization management. Color partners with states, cities, large employers and universities, and dozens of other organizations to roll out large-scale programs that tackle some of our most pressing clinical challenges at a population level. As a result, Atman has a pretty unique insight into what's working and what's not with the U.S. healthcare system. And he's got the data to back up his perspective. So I thought he'd be a great guest to join me here today on Definitively Speaking for a wide-ranging conversation around health equity, our healthcare system, and what we can all do to fix it. Atman, welcome to Definitively Speaking. Hi, Justin. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you here. So tell us a little bit about Color. You know, what makes you different than other providers, right? I mean, you're not the first company to provide widespread COVID testing or immunization. I mean, I can get that from CVS, Walgreens, my local IDN. What's different about Color? Sure. Yeah. I mean, so broadly speaking, so the way Color works is that we're uh, really a last mile care delivery company um, where our focus is to take serv- like healthcare services that in reality should be very easy inexpensive and available to a lot of people and have built the infrastructure and the service model that enables us to deploy these services at very large scale, but also at a at really at the edge uh, in, some, in some way where people's lives actually happen. And so one of the things that makes Color unique is that you know, we don't run clinics. Uh, we're very kind of asset light, if you will, and we use, in many ways, I mean, I think, I think the analogy is almost like, you know, going from bricks and mortar retail to more of an e-commerce model. And so we build the software and logistics infrastructure to be able to do that for the services that really lend themselves to that kind of delivery model. Um, and so as an example today, I mean, we run about 13,000 sites across the country. And these are in really kind of where people's lives happen in the sense of schools, workplaces, churches prisons, fire stations, libraries. And there, the real theory behind everything we do is that you know, one of the biggest you know, impediments for people to access basic healthcare is not cost it financially. Like we actually, a lot of people have a lot of coverage in the US. We spend a lot uh, to cover people. So we don't necessarily need more money in, in the system, but what we need is to make the basic services like just show up in a way that is accessible to people. And there the impediments is the transactional friction, like, you know, if you're an hourly worker or a school teacher or a parent with young kids, the burden of needing to find a doctor, schedule, change your own time, go there and wait and so on, that is oftentimes really what gets in the way of people doing the, the, the basic things or simple things that, you know, they should be doing ahead of time to prevent kind of later, much more expensive um, events. And, and what makes Color Unique here is really that most of the industry our model is not about you know, ourselves hiring an army of clinicians and running massive diagnostics labs and so on, but rather to run the kind of the almost the operational infrastructure to work with local capacity. 
for example, with uh, on the care delivery side for our vaccine sites, as an example, we mostly work with local community-based organizations to do a lot of the staffing. Um, and so we employ kind of local people to operationalize a lot of these care centers uh, or, or access points. And that enables us to both scale very rapidly, have a cost structure that is much leaner, I think, than a traditional model where you need to kind of buy buildings and amortize the staff and so on, but also reach people in a way that's consistent with their communities. When you show up, it's like, you know, all the sites and, you know, services we run feel like they are part of the communities where we're serving people. Um, so that's where I think our model is quite different, I think, than, um, you know, a lot of the kind of traditional community type of healthcare is uh, that we enable that infrastructure and uh, these programs, but work with all of the existing capacity that's already there. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about that because I get what you're talking about traditional healthcare, right? But I read some stat recently somewhere that like 80 plus percent of Americans live within five miles of a CVS or a Walgreens, right? And I think they would advertise it like, we're in your community and you see all the happy stuff on TV and, you know, transport. I get my vaccines at CVS because I live three miles away from a CVS, right? How is what colored doing different from that? Are you going to places in that other 20%? Are you complementing them, competing with them? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I mean, so it's not only the 20% where there are no CVSs where I think there's a real opportunity. It's actually even in dense areas and so on. Like if you think about CVS and the, or other options like that, like the experience is not necessarily designed, for example, for a streamlined vaccine experience, right? Like the, there's long wait time, scheduling is, you have to contend with all the other things that you could potentially or may or may not want to be doing at CVS and so on. And even thinking about like, if you want to go there with your kids, that type of experience is not optimized. Whereas if you think about a vaccine site happening at your kid's school, for example, as part of drop-off where you don't need to literally change your, your kid's schedules as part of that, I think the, that, little, that little step, what feels like a little step you know, in theory is actually what drives, I think, a substantial amount of increase in utilization. Like, um, I mean, this to me feels like very much like the lesson that we've learned through all of the kind of last 20 years of the internet. Like it's why you know, Amazon has one-click checkout, why there's a search box in your browser, you know, why we use we like to use Uber more than, uh, you know, hailing a taxi cab. Taxi cabs are driving around New York, uh, but clicking a button and having a, uh, you know, an Uber show up is dramatically more convenient. And um, and it's it's all those marginal gains, I think, that are that really are the edge where public and population health impact happens, you know, because I think like, you know, even for example, looking at the most recent, you know, stats around vaccines uh, with the bivalent boosters, you know, the numbers nationally are terrible, right? And, and it's being charted to apathy or vaccine hesitancy. And I think that's actually wrong. Like, I think what, at least everything that we've seen is that you have People on the on either end of the distribution that are like, you know, you know, there are people like me who want to get vaccinated as soon as there's an option and, you know, I'll, I'll drive 20 miles or, <laughs> and show up at three in the morning if that's what it takes. And I, and I, you know, really want to, you know, be vaccinated if it's available. So I'll jump over walls to, to get vaccinated. Uh, there are other people that are also on the other end of the spectrum that are like, you know, where you basically have to, you know, tie them up and force them to get vaccinated then they won't otherwise. But most people, you know, are in this like center of the distribution where their actions are going to be primarily most influenced by the path of least resistance and, con and convenience. There's still a distribution within that, but they're much more like, it's not about convincing them as much as about the availability. Like when we run sites at, at churches and et cetera, like 
everyone. And, and by the way, this is not just about vaccines, right? Like, and that's the thing that why I'm saying like it's it's I think it's incorrect about hesitancy is like we see literally the same thing happen, whether it's around cholesterol, diabetes, and hypertension screening, vaccines, HIV testing, you know, all of these things that are charted to education. And it, it is true that those things do have an impact, but I think in reality, it actually matters the most is simplicity, availability, convenience. And that's where the, all the marginal gains, you know, and Stuart, back to your point about CVS, you know, it is available, but I think it is really about that, like, yes, I can make it go through that inconvenient process. But if I, if it is part of dropping my kids at school, I just need to show up half an hour earlier or, or you know, add another, you know, 20 minutes after a pickup, it completely changes the game, I think. Or what's, you know, people showing up to a library and church, again, like that, I think that's the, or in the workplace, right? Um, these are all the things I think that, really add up and where that are the most in some ways the easiest quote unquote right like it's it's not easy in the sense that it just happens by itself but it's a eminently tractable problem like as opposed to winning a political battle about convincing all the you know anyone who's doubting about vaccines and trying to make it a you know this kind of religious debate it really is i think in many cases a a practical debate or a practical kind of uh, battle much more than a philosophical one i think so if I really just sum up what you're talking about, I think you're talking about eliminating friction, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I think it's it's literally the most important thing that we can be doing. It leads to, to a natural question, right? Which is around engagement in healthcare, right? I mean, there's the old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Are you saying you can make him drink? I, I believe so. I mean, and again, this is like all the experience that we've had where, you know, when we run, you know, this is like very kind of diverse populations all the way from like, unionized workforces to school children to et cetera, like the, it is always surprising to me the level of uptake that happens when, when you show up as opposed to trying to, con to, to treat it as like, oh, I need to convince someone to do something that's kind of inconvenient for them. And so I think right now it's like, I think the analogy maybe is, is not like you can lead the person to water. I think really what we're doing right now is we're pointing to, we're taking people and pointing where there may be water and trying to convince them to go find it as opposed to showing up with a bucket, uh, you know, on the road that, as they're going by, right? Like, to me, that's, I think, the, the, the real kind of distinction there. So, you know, we, we generally try to stay away from politics on this podcast, but I kind of have to ask, this has been covered like in the New York Times, like the red and the blue states, right? And you see vaccine adoption tends to be much higher in, in the blue states and the, and the more liberal leaning states, but you're going into communities across the country and as you're going, again, to meeting people where they are, whether that's at their churches or at their schools or stuff like that, are you seeing a difference and a variance based on politics and political beliefs in the communities? I would like to kind of go and look at the, the stats for this. I'd be, I'm curious. Here's my impression uh, or, or something where my bet would be, is that the real difference, uh, and by the way, we do a lot of work in both red and blue states. Um, I think the difference is much more at the policy and the debate at that level and the decision about what programs to run. But when programs are actually running, for example, I mean, even if you look at California, we do tons of work across California. And California is a, you know, people think of it as a, you know, deep blue state. But in reality, that's like in the big cities, you know, but by surface area, California is, is basically red, uh, not just, but not by, by population. But we do a lot of work in uh, parts of the state that are considered, you know, red parts of the state and our programs get 
a high level of adoption there too. So I think it's like when people are like, when it's a, a simple choice for you to, especially when it's in your community, it takes away the politics. It's not like you don't see it as like, oh, it's the state that is trying to intrude on my, you know, on my belief or whatever. When these things show up and it is in context and the choice is like, hey, you know, do you want your kids to be vaccinated or not? I'm sure like the politics still move like some part of the distribution, but it, I think I would be surprised if it's actually, if it's not smaller than what, what most people assume it is. Um, because, you know, it's like, okay, you know, most parents, like, you know, they kind of want their kids to be vaccinated. There are a lot of stories about anti-vax parents, et cetera. And it's kind of, it is a problem, but I think it's also the availability and kind of more political influences drive what's accessible as opposed to choices people make when they have access. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about, you know, access and equity topics that I, I know are important to you. Do you feel our, our primary healthcare model has failed on the access and equity front? Short answer, yes. Um, and, you know, that's really what we're working on at Color. And we shouldn't think about healthcare, the healthcare market as one single big blob, right? Like there are parts of healthcare services where there is a propensity or uh, a risk to miss or overutilization. And that is a meaningful risk to manage and, and also risk to overcharging where things are unreasonably expensive and so on. I think that tends to be much more around acute and more elective services. And for that, like the kind of insurance-based model where you want to actually have machinery to kind of like manage utilization down makes a lot of sense. But when I look, when you kind of zoom out and ask ourselves, like, okay, nationally, where do where are we screwing up healthcare in a big way? I mean, people chalk it up as cost. What's driving the cost in many ways is like, yes, we our hospitals etc. are very expensive on one side, but also what's driving up costs is that our burden of acute kind of care needs are very are much higher than they should be. And the, the question is why. And the real answer is that we have a drastic underutilization of all of the much less expensive services that prevent all the downstream you know, that are both impacting people's livelihoods, quality of life and costs, right? And so I think the other side of the healthcare market that I think currently is being kind of just like mushed into the other side is that there's part of healthcare where actually you want to drive access and overutilization is a much, much lesser risk than underutilization. We do not have an overutilization mammographies and colonoscopies. I always jokingly say, like, I have never met a single human being who wants to overutilize mammographies or colonoscopies, right? Like that just does not exist, right? And the same goes for things like managing cholesterol, you know, managing, you know, hypertension, diabetes, like the actual cost of screening and the cost of managing these before they become acute is extremely low, right? Like statins are almost free at the pill level. What's not free is everything we do around making it possible for some, someone to manage their cholesterol. So, so I think that's the part where we're really failing is that we have a system that has converged to making the part of healthcare that should be really around transactional efficiency, around access, around just blasting supply into the system. And instead we have, you know, we manufacture scarcity. Uh, and I think that in the, in the areas where color works, right? Like, so we focus on three main areas. One is essential care, which is unbundling of primary care. It's effectively a primary, discrete primary care model. Second is uh, infectious disease. So uh, started with COVID, HIV, and other STI, hepatitis, and so on. And the third is behavioral health. And across all three of these, the 
course, supply is actually extremely abundant. Like, you know, we talk about the mental health crisis in the US and part of the narrative is that there's a huge amount of scarcity of therapists. I, I think this is, I'm pretty sure like therapists are literally the single largest block of healthcare providers in the country. I think 700,000 therapists in the US. So there are actually a lot of them. The reason they feel scarce is that the mechanism through which we pay them, through which they can access patients and the, the, the kind of the marketplace is we've broken it up in a way that makes therapists scarce. Like most therapists do not want to take insurance. They require cash pay, right? And so all of a sudden, everyone who's you know, on Medicaid and et cetera, like on government programs or can't afford it, does not have access. It feels scarce because there are no, but in reality, therapists are there. The problem is that we, don't have, we haven't constructed a market that makes it possible or worthwhile for them to participate in it. So actually, it's one of these things where it's like, there is supply. Similar with you know testing, right? Like there is a huge amount of diagnostic capacity in the country, but it's putting that capacity on the market that is actually where we, I think one of the places where we really fail, but I think it's a solvable problem. Like I think it's like where the solution starts is by not treating these things as things that are like under the insurance, you know, utilization management umbrella, right? Like I think that is the first kind of like acknowledgement and kind of like, and I think once we kind of think of it that way, actually very practical, simple solutions start materializing that have worked in every, most other industries <laughs> that we can apply to healthcare. Anyways, this, uh, that's a very long, uh, long-winded answer to, to, your, to your question, but like, at least that's one way I would look at it. Right, so there's a lot there that we can unpack. So let's start unpacking some of that. Let's start with an obvious one. Give me an example of something, that other industry that you just talked about where we could apply it to healthcare. Yeah, I mean, so take one example of, you know, where you want to maximize access is like, say, retail. I mean, I think one big this difference in, in healthcare versus other many almost every other industry in our life where there's a lot of uh, a vibrant market is in with a thing that we call insurance in the in the U.S. especially conflates two things or mixes two things. One is kind of the the bank account, if you will, like your insurance financial custodian, right? Like it's it's you can think of insurance as like just this social bank account that money is put into either through the government or your employer or other means. And that has properties around how, what you can, to what kind of services you can use uh, this money for, how it's collectivized between a pool of people, right? So you can think of it almost as like a financial kind of custodian uh, of value. The other part that we call and think of insurance is the network to access services. You know, like, you know, every insurance plan has a network and negotiates with labs, with care centers, providers, and so on. And we all think that's normal, but when we look at most other aspects of our experience in a, in a place where there's like a, an effective capitalistic market, those two are kind of separate. You have your money in Bank of America, but your credit card network is Visa. And Bank of America does not get to go and build a network for where you can buy coffee from. And I think the, the first reaction everyone has to that is like, yeah, there's a kind of a consumer choice dimension to that, right? Like imagine Bank of America went and did their analysis of like, okay, we acknowledge you need a coffee provider. So we're going to do a bunch of, you know, analysis. And we decided, you know, Seattle's best coffee is a great coffee provider. And, you know, that's where Bank of America customers can buy their coffee. All of us as consumers react is like, okay, that's not great from a consumer choice standpoint because I like Starbucks or whatnot. But I think even much bigger problem that I think is what we cause the scarcity effect that we have in healthcare is that it does not enable even something like a Starbucks and Phil's or Pete's or whatever, like other coffee shop you know you like to 
even exist or succeed in the marketplace because they don't have a flat market on which to compete. Because I think what happens there is that you create all these local monopolies. Bank of America would effectively have a monopoly power over where you consume coffee, where you buy clothes and so on. And what happens there is that the rents of better products go up to them as opposed to down to the people who are actually building the services. And that's literally what's happening in healthcare, right? That's why, you know, in the Fortune 20, most of the Fortune 20 companies are, <laughs> uh, you know, are payers, right? Like, and it's, it's actually, that's, that, I think that's why it's like, it, are they really creating the value into the system or is it just a market power? I mean, the reason why you regulate monopolies is that because they work, right? Like it's, if they didn't work, you don't have to regulate them. It's like, but I think here we think it's not a, there's not a monopoly problem because we've segmented and diced up the market. But in reality, we've created a system that enables all these local monopolies to happen. I think that's what breaks the market. So I th- you're, you're probably in your head, you're like, we thought we we're going to talk about healthcare. And this is kind of like a <laughs> economics conversation. But, uh, but I, to, to me, that's actually like, that is part of the, you know, a big part of the, the challenge that we need to, to overcome. Yeah, no, so you're right on topic here. I mean, this is a top co- podcast about the business of healthcare. So you're right on there. But as you were sitting there giving that example about the coffee and Bank of America and Visa, I actually thought of one even more inhibitor on top of that around consumer choice, which is the role of your employer in your health insurance. If I love Aetna, it doesn't matter because our head of benefits here at Definitive picked Blue Cross Blue Shield. And if my favorite doctors in the Aetna network and not in the Blue Cross Blue Shield network, I don't have a choice. And, you know, De- Definitive Healthcare doesn't tell me what kind of coffee I can drink, right? They don't tell me that I only can buy coffee from the Dunkin' Donuts. You know, that's a Massachusetts law, but that's a separate thing. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, my employer doesn't tell me, but my employer does in some direct fashion, you know, tell me which doctor I can see yeah. I can't see. Yeah, I think it's, it's also, I think there's kind of like, yeah, to your point, I think there are these like layers of, you know, because in reality, like, who is a true buyer? And what is their distance and their agency over, you know, what is actually bought in the market? And I think one thing that you see across, you know, all the, you know, even big buyers, right, like today, um, whether it's like, you know, government programs, or whether very large employers, everything is mediated through, you know, negotiations with plans, and their network and their, etc. And like, I think one question is like, is that the right model to create an open and competitive market, right? Like, because, in, in, because I think like, really, what's the goal, right? Like, cholesterol management is, the, is one of the, you know, big problems we have. Say, you're a startup company, and you made the best cholesterol management program, dollar for dollar in the world. Say you have that, you save money, and you have much better outcomes. In a, a litmus test, right? Like in a functioning market, you give it a, you know, a year or two, you just take over the market. Whereas in reality, we all know that that is not at all going to happen in the way we run our system today. Um, and so the question is like, what are things, incremental changes that we can make? Because I think like also going and saying, like, okay, we're going to throw everything out the window and start from, from the beginning is just not going to work. And so the question I ask myself is like, what are individual incremental changes that can be done that can start walking down that path? I think one of the things that, that is happening very much so now is that, and I think it's actually been really affected by the pandemic. Through COVID, all of the real buyers, you know, the big wallets, government and large employers, took a very active role in managing what was happening. You know, in reality, like all the health plans were kind of like bystanders to the pandemic. I think you know, it's kind of like they were they were doing a few things, but kind of just like sitting there hoping no one really noticed that they were there. 
And like, it was like the employers that really kind of all went to set up their own programs, you know, every single state and the federal government, like all kind of went and directly bought and managed services. And I think that also changed that, like really accelerated this movement that was already happening, which is them acting much more as direct purchasers of care and either, you know, requiring that things be put into network that they thought were important or just taking them completely out of the kind of the insurance bundle and saying, you know, this is actually not an insurance product. Like, you know, because if you think about it, right, like cholesterol management or annual colonoscopy, et cetera, it's not an insurance product. There's it's not, like the risk is not of a risk of utilization, it's risk of underutilization. And so like the entire insurance mindset and model and terminology is completely inverted for these services, right? And so like, I think that's in many ways why you're seeing a lot of employers, for example, spending a lot more like in direct benefits or taking a much more active role in managing some of these services where they actually want to drive utilization because that's the problem is, you know, is access is not uh, much less so than coverage. You know, you talk about the insurance companies in pandemic, they actually made a lot of money in the pandemic, right? Because hospitals shut down, elective surgery shut down, heart transplant shut down, all these super expensive services. And, you know, it's sad to say treating people for COVID, even in the volume, was actually a lot cheaper for these insurance companies than the usual things that they were paying for. And then, you know, what was being covered in terms of COVID was actually being dictated to them by the government. You will pay for every COVID test. You will pay for everybody's COVID shots. There will be no out-of-pocket for everybody. And so I think they were really forced to change how they interacted with both their members and also their employers. Yeah. And also, I mean, the, you know, a couple of thoughts there, but by the way, one, one thing I want to say is like, actually, like, I think a lot of this is put under a moralistic kind of lens in these discussions sometimes. And I actually think like, you know, the pairs are actually acting completely rationally. You know, it's like, you don't want to condemn, you know, the carnivorous animal for eating, for eating meat, right? Like, it's kind of like, it is like the market, they're a product, I think, of the system that, and so I think they're actually acting super rationally. Um, the question is how to change the system so that the collective rational behavior, and you can let them act rationally in this model, but like then there are certain services and products that don't make sense under that, you know, structure, right? Like, and so, but one thing that's going to be an interesting evolution now is like, as we move out of the public health emergency, I think we're going to see like literally in reality, most of the services, whether it's immunizations, you know, therapeutics for people who test who get or have COVID, as well as uh, testing, theoretically, there should still be ample coverage, right? It's being mandated that there's coverage for, for people. So we know the dollars are there, but I bet you what you're going to see is a huge drop in utilization. And so you know that it's not a budget question. It's a financial and transactional friction question that is driving that drop. Like, you know, the money's there. People are still the same people you're managing. We're going to still have outbreaks. We're going to still have, et cetera. And so what is good, what drives, you know, people not getting vaccinated and so on? I think it's going to be much more that friction as opposed to funding. And so I think it just kind of shows us a good case in point of like impact of using a an inadequate transactional model for service where you want to drive utilization. And so I, th- I think that's kind of in many ways, like I think the, you know, the way I look at it, and I think we're, we're seeing this a lot from employers and so on is like really a big awareness around like, you know, for things where you want to drive utilization, this transactional model is not the right long-term model. And so we have to, you know, come out of it. I think one of the ways people are trying to get to it is kind of more of a, this kind of the value-based care structuring 
I think in reality, it solves more of the incentives problem for over-utilization. So I think value-based care is actually very good for managing costs that are unnecessary and kind of like acute management, doing better acute management. I think that's really where value-based care, I think, works. Prevent, you know, where people don't need to go to the ER, you serve them at home and et cetera. Like, and when people, someone is like, you know, already diabetic and so on, like, how do you, you know, manage them better so they don't go, to, like, they're already in the acute state. I don't think that model is necessarily going to translate to that kind of like very high volume, low transactional friction model. Um, because I think that there it's like, it's still putting it through this kind of like machinery that is fundamentally trying to moderate down utilization and trying to control uh, down utilization, prioritizing around that. So, yeah, so it's kind of, I think the question is like, yeah, what is the, how do we kind of evolve? <laughs> it, it almost, if I try to put it in a nutshell, it says you're trying to drive overutilization of preventative healthcare. Or, or you, you, I don't, I wouldn't put the word over. I think it's kind of like appropriate utilization of preventative and, uh, and it's not just preventive, but also even, you know, basic chronic disease, like all the things that like, I feel in many ways, there are a lot of parts of healthcare that really should be cheap and easy to do. And shame on us if we can't do that. <laughs> right. Like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, like it's kind of, it's, 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 to me, it's been fascinating. Like, you know, for example, we, Testing for sexually transmitted diseases in churches seems like a bad idea. Like, you know, it's like, oh, who's going to want to go and get an STI test? We've, we have done some of these and we've been shocked by the utilization. It's like 40% take rates on, on these. And it's all about availability. And so like, and so all these places where there are these big gaps, um, it's not about as much about hammering people over the head over with them. It's if once we lower friction, then we can try to do more convincing. But I think like it is the the there's so much more ease of impact that that to be had and over such a big base of people that that's where you know at least I feel like all the focus should go. So I, I have to ask you, sitting here talking about this, I can't imagine the insurance companies are big fans of yours. So who's paying for all the stuff that Color's doing? Well, it's actually, by the way, just kind of it's interesting. Um, we actually have some very good relationships with payers, and I'll I'll, oh. I'll, I'll explain why. But um, so in general, we have three, three types of customers. One is government, second are employers, uh, and the third is with payers. Um, and so payers in many ways actually have the same problem for part of their book, right? Like it's like they have, they're on the hook for these capitated populations, whether it's in Medicaid or Medicare, right? Like, or, or fully insured uh, populations where they too are having challenges serving people in healthcare deserts or in places with low access. For example, we, we are directly working with payers for their Medicaid populations. We work with them for in places where it's like you, either there are no PCPs available or there are PCPs, but they're not taking new patients and they need to get basic care to, to these folks. And how do you do that? In some ways, they actually have the same incentives. The, the problem is that they have, it's what I was saying earlier is like, I think it's like, it's not that they're like trying to do the wrong thing. It's like the overall structure within which they're operating and the machinery they're, they're utilizing just does not satisfy the, the, the parts of healthcare where you want to maximize access. And so, and that's why like, you know, I mean, you're, we see this every day where like, you know, payers are buying primary care practices, which is exacerbating the problem on one side too, right? Like, you know, basically the payers are like, you know, but they're forced to do that. Like they're, it's not, again, it's not because they're trying to lock people out. It's like, but for them to deliver for their customers, you're like, okay, I need 50 PCPs in, uh, you know, uh, Cincinnati, okay, I'm just going to go and buy a practice, right? And put them on our EMR, et cetera. 
And the reason they have to do that is that they can't do all the gap closures without doing that, right? Like, and so it's, it's the question is why that, like the, the market hasn't created abundance of those services that really are cheap and should be easy to deliver. Got it. So this has been amazing. I got two last questions here for you before we wrap up. So the first one is kind of, I've been, I'm coming back to politics with our Twice in One podcast here, right? But as I'm listening to you talk, you know, it, it sounds like you're very much advocating that everyone should have the same access to healthcare, regardless of the cost to deliver that care and regardless of their personal economic situation. But the frank reality is that's just not the case in the U.S., right? And so I'd ask you, should it be? And if yes, then are you advocating for socialized medicine like what they have in Canada and the U.K.? So first of all, actually, that's not my perspective, by the way. So okay. what I'm implying, a um, few, few thoughts or statements. First of all, I think we are already spending in the U.S., I think, more per capita than almost any other country in, in the world. We are. Uh, in, both in aggregate as well as even if you just look at government spending in healthcare, it's probably more than most per capita, most socialized uh, care spending in most countries. And so it's not actually that we need more money in the system. I think we actually have a lot of coverage. And I think there are places where the, like, you know, more equ equitable coverage, et cetera, would be, would be important. But I don't think that's actually the biggest problem. I think the biggest problem is that we have a broken marketplace that consumes all of the value we're putting into the system, right? Like about 25 cents of every dollar we put into healthcare goes into transaction costs, like does not pay doctors, does not pay labs or therapeutics. It goes into the transaction, right? Like, you know, whereas you pay 3% when you use your credit card to buy a coffee, you know, or when you buy a home, like the biggest purchase of your life is 6% transaction costs. And we spend five to 10 times that in healthcare. And so the question is like, why can't we compete that down? So I think that's like really the more my, it's not about putting in more money in. It's actually, I think we have a, a, bro, a non capitalist, like it's almost like I'm actually not going to socialism and going more towards using the power of capitalism <laughs> to compete it down. Um, I do think it's important for the government to have a very, like, you know, in reality, essential healthcare, like, you know, basic healthcare, everywhere in the world, or pretty much most places in the world, there's a base of it that is a social component. The same reason we don't pay for roads. I think there's like a core, you know, as consumers, we're very willing to spend money to the discretionary money to, you know, do things that make us better, right? Like, you know, we were willing to pay for Weight Watchers or Peloton or hair loss meds or whatever, but like the core basic prevention, screening, basic, you know, like, um, like cholesterol, hypertension, et cetera, that are actually in reality should be highly available is quite socialized everywhere in the world, including the US, right? Like even when you say it's paid by employers, it is also partially because of, of the tax uh, treatment for that. So, you know, in reality, like we do have a lot of socialized spending in the US just through different means, but we don't get the benefits of it. And so that's, that's really where, where I'm with it. It's, it's, so it's, uh, and I think that's how we get equity is by creating a better market as opposed to um, uh, just throwing more money into it. Got it. That's helpful. Thanks for that clarification. So the last question, it's clear that there's a lot in our U.S. healthcare system that needs to get fixed, but we can't fix everything and we can't do it all at once. And I don't want our poor listeners out there to be overwhelmed by everything that we have to do. So before we close out here, I just want to ask you, where do we start and how long is it going to take? Yeah, so I, I'm kind of a bit tunnel visioned right now on one part of it, which is this network piece. Um, which I think is actually one of the keys to access. And so in my mind, I think the starting, real starting point 
is the two biggest blocks of purchasing, which are both governments and employers, to figure out a way for them to pull out network access from being melded with the insurance plans. To me, that feels actually like really the one of the keys. Um, and so whether it's with CMS and CMMI or at, the, at state levels, I think, I think those are actually quite doable and where, you know, there can be solutions there that like, especially for, again, for non-acute basic services where you want to maximize access. With COVID, I think there was actually a lot of direct network access in some sense. And I think that is actually something that we can make a direct move on. And so, and I think actually a lot of things are already moving in that direction. So, but to me, that feels like one of the big unlocks that is quite available and is quite doable in, the, in a very proximal future. It's amazing, Atman. You know, it's great to have you on today. Honestly, to borrow a phrase from Captain America, I could do this all day. I could talk to you about economics. In fact, I even felt like we were back in our, you know, business school macroeconomics class here today. But uh, I learned a lot. Hopefully our listeners did. And look, thanks for coming on, spending an hour with us on Definitively Speaking. Thank you, Justin. Great to see you. And for all the listeners out there, thank you for listening to Definitively Speaking, a definitive healthcare podcast. Please join me next time for our wrap-up, end of your wrap-up episode. Todd and Brittany will be back in studio with me to discuss what we learned this year, who made us laugh, who made us cry, and what's our outlook for 2023. Who knows? We may even brainstorm on our guest wish list for the next year. I hope you'll tune in to listen. If you like what you've heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about how healthcare commercial intelligence can support your business, please follow us on Twitter at DefinitiveHC or visit us at DefinitiveHC.com. Until next time, take care, stay healthy, and don't forget to study for that economics exam.